when somebody says acoustic syndicate, what do you want them to think? Damn, them guys still around? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like, those guys are still around. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I was six years old on my birthday. I had a great aunt lived in Fort Lauderdale. Sent me a sailor suit to the U.S. man. Set me free. Let's say you're 12 years old and you, your sibling, and your cousin get a fiddle, a banjo, and a guitar for Christmas. The parents give you kids a crash course on playing a few songs and trot you out in front of the family for entertainment. Where does this story end? Maybe you didn't have an experience quite like that. Maybe you were more like me, a kid who was made to take piano lessons throughout childhood and adolescence, someone who eventually took up the trumpet for a brief period and now appreciates those experiences, but doesn't play music anymore. Maybe you played the recorder in elementary school, if you were old enough to have been in school when they still held music classes. Maybe you even had an experience closer to what brothers Brian and Fitz McMurray and cousin Steve McMurray had when they got that fiddle, banjo, and guitar for Christmas, and you learned to play. You play together during your youth, then you go off to college. What next? Maybe you play in a band for a while. Maybe you just leave your instrument behind in an attic. Odds are that you're not going to play out much past your teens or early 20s. You probably won't play in a band that tours outside of your home state, even if you get to be paid for playing gigs anywhere. Statistics tell you that only a small fraction of kids given fiddles, banjos, guitars, or any instruments will ever wind up playing them on a record. Fewer still will wind up playing them in front of thousands of fans, at any point, and only a handful of those will somehow keep doing this sort of thing for 25 years. But the original members of the band Acoustic Syndicate started out with those Christmas gifts, and they've done all that and then some. Welcome to Southern Songs and Stories, the documentary series on the music of the South and the artists who make it. 
This episode is sponsored by Jam in the Trees, the music festival at Pisgah Brewing in Black Mountain, North Carolina, that supports local not-for-profit wild forests and fauna and the Big Tree Project, where Acoustic Syndicate will play August 26th. The whole lineup and more information can be found at jaminthetrees.com. We're sponsored by Little King Records, published five of Acoustic Syndicate's seven albums, and by Dynamite Roasting, the world's best 100% certified organic and fair trade coffee. Roasted with love in Black Mountain, North Carolina, dynamiteroasting.com. And we're sponsored by you when you join us as a patron and help keep this series going. More information on our website at southernsongsandstories.com and our crowdfunding page, patreon.com slash southernsongsandstories. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, and I'm so very glad to be able to bring this episode to you, a glimpse into one of my favorite bands who also happen to live quite close by, at least several of them, as Steve, Brian, Fitz, and I all call Cleveland County, North Carolina home. But this episode was recorded largely in Durham, North Carolina, when the band played there for the first time. It just so happened that it was the only place we could all get together at the same time. And it was worth driving a couple of hundred miles to do it, as I hope you'll agree when you hear the conversations we had there. Acoustic Syndicate has had a great run. Here's a short list of some major stages they've played. Bonnaroo, twice. Farm Aid, Telluride Bluegrass Festival, High Sierra Music Festival, Green Acres Music Hall, names you're probably familiar with. If Green Acres doesn't ring a bell, we'll fill you in as we go on. But Acoustic Syndicate has threaded a needle that very few artists have managed to do, and much of their success was not because of ambition, maybe more a kind of serendipity, or maybe just not rushed. Not to say that they are in any way unworthy. As you will hear, there's a good chance they could have been a household name, at least in certain circles all across the country. But they didn't set out with any accolades in mind. Not all of them were convinced that they could be, or should be, full-time musicians early on. The band's sound comes from a wide variety of influences, and Appalachian traditions are among them, but not necessarily the first. I asked them about the music that surrounded them early on and what points of view they started out with, starting with Brian McMurray, 
whom Brother Fitz once described as, quote, sort of a guitar player trapped inside a banjo player's body. We'll also hear from the band's guitarist, Steve McMurray, dobro player Billy Cardine, bassist Jay Sanders, and drummer Fitz McMurray. Our neighbors down the road, the Eagle yeah. Boys, uh, they, they, they had a, a good cross-section of music. So learning about Weather Report, for instance, when we were kids, to, uh, um, and then Fitz, we picked up a Genesis, the tr- a Trick of the Tail record. Um, I was trying to think of some of the Quadrophenia. I remember that being one of the first records around. And, uh, and there was the Sex Pistols years. Sex Pistols. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was a huge, huge Sex Pistols fan. Um, but at the same time, uh, when I was like 11, my mom bought me a, a Pete Seeger record. Yes. And it totally rocked my world. I was like, this is great. And there was just a guy in a banjo with a bass player. And he was singing these incredible songs. And, and uh, Your mom bought you a Pete Seeger record? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When I was 11, she... she uh, she bought. She came home with a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and her and Christy went and picked it up. And uh, but she she thought that I might like that for some reason or other. My my folks were were sort of folkies, you know, back yeah, in the day. You're the nerdy folk guy. I know. I was totally the nerdy folk yeah. guy. <laughs> but uh, that's that's kind of where. That, and I remember playing that record. It was on Verve Records. And I remember playing that thing till it wouldn't play anymore. And I know I knew every, and that's the I've recorded one of his songs, uh, "Roll on Columbia," that came off of that record. Growing up having a banjo, I didn't, you know, this sounds crazy, but it, then I didn't have a clue about even where to look to to learn bluegrass music. I, I, you would think growing up right there, and uh, I always tell this story with the Earl Scruggs thing. He worked with my grandparents in the cotton mill at Lily Mill there. He was about 15 years old, and they had, they would play music together on Sunday afternoons. And my grandmother would feed him feed him lunch, um, just right down the road. But you would think getting a banjo that I would be connected. Going back a little bit, my grand my grandfather passed away when my mother was a senior in high school, so I never got to meet him. Um, but my grandmother would always talk about him. You know, she would talk about you know Earl this and Earl that back when they worked in the cotton mill together. I grew up listening to rock and roll. When I grew up, I was just playing classical music. I started playing piano when I was like four. And so when I went to the music store, I was buying sheet music. And then once I started buying more like popular music, that was like... It's like my options were different than even than even than you guys. We only have like you know what seven to ten years or so like separating us, but but the options were just completely different. Like CDs had just started to come out, and so and and there was more stuff available. And early on, I was really interested in just music from all over the world. You know, I was living in Virginia and I was surrounded by a lot of bluegrass. I saw them scene right down the road, and there's pretty big pretty big scene in the D.C. area, but. I, I was I was interested in folk music and and like honest just like natural music, but I wanted I, I was actually trying to get like a recording from every country that I possibly could that like reflected whatever their like traditional music was, and then so I'm getting this whole like record collection together, playing piano, playing cello and clarinet and sax and guitar and, and school orchestras and just jamming with friends and stuff 
And then the iPod comes along. And then all this music goes on the iPod. And then I hit shuffle. And I'm, like, walking around. You know, I'm bouncing all over the world at this point. And so, like, there's, there's intake that wasn't really totally possible, like, just, you know, even just a handful of years before. I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, so from the very, very beginning, I was always surrounded by the best of the best, and I didn't know any different. Like, I remember going to street festivals as a kid and watching just some of the most amazing musicians in the entire world and just not thinking anything of it, you know. Um, my earliest influences that I remember, I mean, I remember meeting Emmylou Harris. My dad lived just down the street from Johnny Cash. Um, I actually worked a catering gig at one of Johnny Cash's children's weddings, you know, and so I was sitting there actually at the gift table accepting gifts from, uh, you know, Glenn Campbell and, and wow. John Hartford and, you know, you know, all these different people like sitting there going, yes, yes, you know, yes, Mr. Monroe, thank you, sign here, you know. Um, and that was just kind of the norm. Like, I, my earliest influences were Bela Fleck, The Grateful Dead, um, the early years of the Aquarium Rescue Unit and things like that. And, and when I was going to see music like that in the late 80s and early 90s in Nashville, it just was there everywhere, like constantly. So I didn't really know there was a difference between the music of the South and everything else because I was just felt like I was just in the middle of where all of this soul was coming from. You know, we'd go walk around downtown and just it was just there it wasn't until i left nashville i actually realized how good it was there you know and the influences that were there um that really but i was always drawn towards acoustic music and that and that's how i ended up in in the in western north carolina and living in the appalachians because that was just always I, from my earliest days i felt like that's where i was supposed to be i'm the uh, the funk guy of the band but you know to get back to the southern question all the black guys that 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 were all around us growing up I got exposed to Parliament Funkadelic early on, and you know I'm the guy who was talking about David Bowie fame and and Earth Wind and Fire. But I've always been from an early age the funk, the R&B, the, especially the southern aspect of, of of that type of music. That's 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 what took me from an early age, and that's that's where I that's where I come from. All of these influences run throughout the Acoustic Syndicate catalog and show up regularly in covers that the band plays. Grateful Dead, Bob Marley, The Police, The Who, and this one from Neil Young. But look out, Mama, there's a white bus coming up the river. It's got a big red beacon and a flag and a man on a rail. I guess you better call John, cause it don't look like they're here to deliver the mail. And it's less than a mile away. There's a saying that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, and that is true most of the time. But you can almost always judge a band by its covers. And Acoustic Syndicate is no exception there. By the mid-90s, the band's first bass player was moving on. Steve, Brian, and Fitz were all fans of a band called Snake Oil Medicine Show. I I remember asking uh, George from from Snake Oil if we could borrow you for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, uh, man, you know, we like need a bass player for a little bit. Uh, is there any way you could like 
are you guys like playing a whole lot? And he goes, no, nah, Big Daddy, you take him. He said, you guys, uh, you guys go and do your thing. He said, when we need him back, we'll let you know. <laughs> so you bartered. I didn't realize there was some bartering going on. <laughs> yeah. Damn. I hope, I hope we got a good price. Yeah. <laughs> well, we figured we got to get in the deal. Well, you know. Well, I just played a snickle no. gig last uh, last weekend. That's actually. awesome. That's Island. Awesome. We're still no offense to George. We love yeah. George. He's one of my heroes of all yeah. time. Warp extra cosmoverse. Alleviate the ache in my consciousness, baby. Touch of Snake Oil with Jay Sanders in the lineup from their 1997 self-titled record. Snake Oil Medicine Show, who now borrowed Jay Sanders back from Acoustic Syndicate from time to time. So here we are at what would become a major turning point for the band. They didn't have their minds set on being a full-time professional band. Guitarist Steve McMurray. Speaking for me personally, it never, never dawned on me that it might be an actual possibility to actually do what my heroes are doing, you know, it's just, it just never, never occurred to me. Right. We didn't take uh, ourselves serious enough as No. Like, as and, it, and, it was, and it was because, I don't know if it was just because it was caught up in life, you know, and just pressure from, from parents to do X, Y, Z, go to college, get a job. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've, I've heard our parents say, you boys never will amount to anything. <laughs> We've heard that so many times. <laughs> I mean, you guys will never amount to nothing. But anyway, yeah. I mean, you know, all that aside, it was just that was never really, unlike you know Billy Cardine, who you know probably woke up one morning and said, "I'm going to be a musician from here on out. This is what I'm going to do." That was that for me. That wasn't. I had other things I was going to do. You know, I was going to be a hot shot technician and go off and do miracles. But just never. You know. Anyway, so the music thing kind of came as a sort of an afterthought, but not, it's not, I don't want to really call it an afterthought, but it was, it was a, it seemed like the second option. And it was all of a sudden, the second option looked pretty good. This is where one of the most important people in the story of the band steps in. Steve Metcalf, now of Little King Records, was then producing live shows every weekend at a place called Green Acres Music Hall, an outdoor venue tucked into Golden Valley, near Bostick, North Carolina. Maybe venue is a generous term, but plenty of clubs and concert halls couldn't come close to putting together the run that Green Acres did from roughly the 1980s to around 2000. It's a story all its own, and hopefully we can tell that one day too. Steve, Brian Fitz, and now Jay Sanders had started playing gigs there in their travels around the region, and there was a buzz growing about the band. It just seemed like things started, started happening then. The money situation started happening at Green Acres. That's where we started seeing, yeah. you know, I always, I always just assumed I was going to follow in my dad's footsteps and, and farm our, our family farm. I, I really, after a, a, 
a stint three years in college, and I just came back to the farm, and um, I, I just assumed that's what it was going to be. Steve encouraged them to take themselves more seriously. You go way back with Acoustic Syndicate. Tell us about those early years. How did you meet them? Uh, they used to come over to my little honky-tonk Green Acres Music Hall, and uh, their original bass player, Doug Rogers, was doing carpentry work for me, building me a, a parrot porch. And he said, I wish you'd come over and over in the country in Cleveland County and hear this little band I've got together and we'll play for you in my backyard. And I went over to his house and got in the backyard and there's Steve and Brian and Fitz McMurray and uh, Doug on the bass and they started playing and I just couldn't believe the sound that they had. So uh, we pretty immediately decided... uh, Let's go to Nashville. We didn't, we didn't have a clue what that was all about, but uh, we uh, took off to Nashville, and uh, I called Sam Bush and asked him to come help us since I didn't know what I was doing. And Sam came over and kind of became uh, Acoustic Syndicate and my dad for the original recordings at uh, Butch Turner's studio in Nashville, and uh, in fact, it was down to, we ought to put this on a label, and we kind of looked blank at each other, and uh, I was drinking a Little King Cream Ale at the time, and I, I said, what do you think we call a label Little King Records? And that's how that came about. And then we did the, the, the first record and came back home, and Acoustic Syndicate started playing at Green Acres, and, uh, you know, that front like David Grisman and, and all these, Norman Blake and all these great people. And, uh, and then the syndicate just started getting big and bigger and bigger. And uh, we recorded four, four albums on Little King Records, Acoustic Syndicate, and uh, changed bass players. Jay Sanders came on at bass, and there were various other people that came in and out of the band uh Darren Aldridge was the, one of the best things that was ever in the band uh he came in and played played I think he played a little guitar mandolin and saxophone and uh uh and he's off to a great career now himself and his beautiful wife and Darren and Brooke so uh then then uh Acoustic Syndicate was getting so big that uh Sugar Hill decided they were going to take him.
Acoustic Syndicate was going places. They had a record, then another. By the time of their third album, Crazy Little Life, they began being courted by bigger players in the music industry. All the while, they felt torn between the life of a band on the road playing hundreds of dates a year and home. Banjo player Brian McMurray. It was a tough thing because I have a lot of emotion and a lot of my heart and soul was tied to that small piece of ground there that we formed. And I, and when I was home, I was thinking, I need to be out on the road making music. And when I was out on the road making music for three or four weeks, I was thinking, oh, fuck, I need to be home at the farm. It was, it was a tough, it was a tough thing to work out there for a, for a, for a long time. And then you know you start having you start your family comes around and then that 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 changes things. Getting back touching on your question, there was a moment in time when the Crazy Little Life record, we were on a serious upswing then. That, that's when the band, folks were starting to take it. We didn't realize yeah. people Na- still bought records too. Nas- nationally. Yeah, yeah it, it was we starting that we were. Yeah. If had we made some decision decisions there, that that could have been a game changer for us. This. Uh, we, we got some offers to, to get some different management, but out of loyalty to to the folks that we were hooked up with, we ultimately stayed with stayed with them. I mean, for for whatever it is, I mean, it it, it, it worked out the way it yeah, was supposed to. But um, that was a that was a moment in time that things probably could have taken a turn. But you got to sacrifice. All, you know, for me, you have to think. And I'll just you know lay it all out there. When I was out on the road, I was thinking my wife's home raising my kid, and I'm out around there. She's working a full time job and raising my child, and I'm out trying to make a living playing music. But that 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 mess with you know I, I'd be lying if I said it. It, it, it uh, felt like I had a responsibility to to be there. So from around 2000 to 2004, the band was at its most successful, and were feeling the need to strike a balance between the road and their home life. This was when their two albums on Sugar Hill came out, when they played at Bonnaroo twice, when they played at Farm Aid, alongside artists like Willie Nelson, Neil Young, Arlo Guthrie, John Mellencamp, Martina McBride, and the Doobie Brothers. Horn player Jeremy Saunders was in the band then, and here's a bit of his work featured prominently in the title track to Long Way Round. It was after Long Way Round that they decided to take a break. 
In an interview, Steve was quoted as saying, Fitz and Brian were both having to be gone during pregnancies, and the last thing we wanted to do is have our families suffer on account of what we're doing. It's important for us to stay centered and understand what's most important. It was the obvious thing to do at that point. And so Acoustic Syndicate let their musical field go fallow and called it a day. But that wouldn't be the end of their music. There would be a whole other chapter coming, including a new member of the band. When you go back to the group's upbringing, it seems obvious that they wouldn't quit music entirely. In 2004, they had about 12 years together. A great run for any band, really. But their kinship, mutual friendship, and love of music that started when they were kids would find a way to bring Acoustic Syndicate back after a while. When you listen to the band talk about their experiences as kids in the South and how rooted they all were in music, it's not hard to see how they were bound to get back sooner or later. The folks that my father had working on the farm, I wouldn't trade that for a, a thousand lifetimes. Um, the folks that helped us, we were when we, we worked right along the side, side of them. It helped shape the person that I am and, and made me realize that, that people, people are people. And it's a love that, that, that and, a, and an admiration for each other, folks that I grew up with, that, 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 that will never change. I, mean, it's, I can see them 20 years later. One of my very best friends that I'm speaking of is no longer with us, but I spent a lot of time with, with these folks. Um, you know, growing up, we've told this story a thousand times, you know, having immigrants, uh, migrant workers come in and help us grow, pick half-runner green beans, you know, um, from Haiti and Jamaica, you know, they would come and um, uh, they took us in. Me and my uh, another friend of mine from home there, David Riker, he, he lived right beside us. But um, you know, first time I heard reggae music, Dreadlocks in Bellwood, North Carolina. And I was probably 11 or 12 years old. And Dad, for some reason or other, I got stuck with Dad that day, and that's what we had to do. We went to our funeral. And we went up into North Iredale, and these four guys sang at the edge of that grave. And they were from my church. I knew them, but I never knew. They never did that in church, you know. But they went out there and they sang, um, Dear My God to Thee, right right around that, that grave. And I, and I was like, wow. That's, that, was, that was heavy. That was heavy duty. And I was like, this, this is for real. This is the real deal. And we talked about it on the way home, my dad and I. And uh, I was like, why, why don't those guys ever sing in church? He said, that's, that's, they would never show out like that. That's, they do that because they do that out of respect for their friends. Wow. And they would never presume to. <laughs> right. that, that would not be cool for them to do that. Right. You know. So, and I've, that's just another experience of being raised in the South, you know. Dobro player Billy Cardine, who joined the band in 2011. I had a lot of seldom seen influence getting into the Dobro. Like, uh, well, you're from DC too. Well, yeah, well, I'm f- from DC, but, but it was just it was just circumstance that I ended up going to community college, like right out of high school, with Ronnie Simpkins, who was playing uh-huh. bass with Seldom Seen in the Tony Rice unit, and uh, and he was just like the guy that I connected best with in my music theory class, and so we ended up doing our homework and stuff you should, together. You should tell the story like you told it to me today. Oh, that whole thing? Yeah, yeah it's pretty silly. Um, but you know, so me and Ronnie are. are 
doing some ear training or something for our class and at some point he's like yeah you know i play with this this really good guitar player uh tony rice i'm surprised you haven't heard of him and I, and I and I was just like a, this brash seventeen year old. I played guitar and I could like play a bunch of notes or whatever. And, and in my mind, I was just like, man, everybody knows a good guitar player. <laughs> Tony Rice. Uh, <laughs> it turns out he did know a good guitar. Yeah, player. he did. He <laughs> <Actually> did. <laughs> well, if you want to tie this up and draw it full circle so i was going around the same time probably going to see the wooten brothers play every wednesday night starting at the yeah. grapevine cafe in nashville and then moving on to third and lindsley yeah. and uh eventually i i managed to hook up and took music lessons with reggie wooten's and actually hung out with him quite a bit and it was a really interesting thing because they opened my mind to ideas and concepts of musical philosophy as much as technique so it was i mean he showed me how they made all those notes but i was much more interested in how they thought about them And that's Billy Cardine with another one of his projects. It's called The Billy C. He's joined by River Gergarian on percussion and Jake Wolf on the electric bass from his record Global Americana. And before that, Jay Sanders putting some of that musical philosophy to work in his project, Enormous Trio, where he's joined by Michael W. Davis on drums and Steve Alford on clarinets. The years went by in the band at the urging of their booking agent, Hugh Southard, started doing some gigs again. In 2007, they played a show to around 1,000 people at the Orange Peel in Asheville, selling out the venue. Acoustic Syndicate was beginning their next chapter, which would see them adding Billy Cardine to the lineup and recording another record with Little King, called Rooftop Gardens. Coming in from the cold. from the cold oh, oh.
Today, you can catch the band on short stints in the Carolinas region. For this episode, I saw them in Durham, North Carolina, and the next day they were in Wilmington and then Charleston, before getting back into action at Jam in the Trees in Black Mountain the next week, and then in early September at Front Porch Fest in Virginia. I think if, if the, the Seneca had a mission statement, you know, I, I don't like delving into cliche stuff like that, but man, we, we've always just really tried to be positive you know and there's there's a lot of love in this group three of us are related the two of us that are in this group that aren't related might as well be related i mean we we love each other like family this this is a family it's not like a family it is a family and it's like we don't do it for many of the same reasons that, that a lot of folks go out and play music you know it's not it's not for it's not for fame and fortune and it's not why we do that uh, this comes from a different place and, and, and we've made so many friends I'm glad to be one of the friends they've made along the way find out more about acoustic syndicate on their website acousticsyndicate.com spelled just like it sounds that's our show thanks for being here Thanks to our sponsors, Jam in the Trees, Little King Records, and Dynamite Roasting. I encourage you to put some Acoustic Syndicate discs in your collection and see them live. Also, please spread the word about this podcast and consider helping us by becoming a patron. You can find out more at southernsongsandstories.com and at patreon.com slash southernsongsandstories. And you can keep up with us on Twitter at SouthScenes. Stay tuned for another episode here on Southern Songs and Stories, where we're showcasing the music of the South and the artists who make it. Oh my.
when I was in high school, I had a friend. Newgrass was playing at Green Acres all the time, just coming down there. And she kept saying, Steve, I guess you were going over there checking them out. Did you go check out Newgrass at oh, yeah. Green Acres? She kept saying, there's this band, Newgrass Revival. You need to come check them out. And I'm like, going to check that shit out. I was listening to... I was listening to rock and roll. I was listening to Bad Brains, you know, and, and uh, New Grass Revival, whatever. And uh, I didn't care about it. And uh, so I did go see the Flectons the first time. I was like, I was listening to the, I was like the dregs and all that kind of stuff too. But when I saw the Flectons playing, I was like, holy freaking moly. This did just, it, it knocked my socks off. That band knocked, yeah, it was.